Our leader will now share for 20 to 25 minutes describing what it was like, what happened, and what it is like now. Our leader for tonight is Miriam. Miriam. Hi, my name is Miriam. I am a compulsive overeater. Hi, Miriam. Hi. Um, I'm going to start by quickly stating, just for the record, I'm not a century person at this point. By the grace of God, I never got to that place, and I could get there like that. I am the daughter of a compulsive overeater who gained and lost over 100 pounds many, many times in his life and died in 2002 of congestive heart failure, basically in and of this disease. Um, I'm going to show some pictures. This is my whole before and after uh, portfolio that you can flip back and forth through just to make the point um, that I am as low down, rock bottom, hardcore binger as anybody else. I can binge with the best of them. I can binge a log with the best of them. But the uh, 12 and 12 says it all, so I'll just quote. Um, Under the compulsion to overeat, many of us have done things no sane person would think of doing. We have driven miles in the dead of night to satisfy a craving for food. We have eaten food that was frozen, burnt, stale, or even dangerously spoiled. We have eaten food off of other people's plates, off the floor, off the ground. We have dug food out of the garbage and eaten it. We have frequently lied about what we have eaten, lied to others because we didn't want to face the truth ourselves. We have stolen food from our friends, family, and employers, as well as from the grocery store. We have also stolen money to buy food. We have eaten beyond the point of being full, beyond the point of being sick of eating, etc., etc. Check, check, and double check all of the above. Um, the short version, I came, I saw, I binged. I am uh, from a long line of short Jewish women with, long blood, with low blood sugar. You never want to see a woman in my family get too hungry. And I also grew up in the kind of family where, on one hand, food is love. They came out of the shtetl. They came out of the Depression. They came from Eastern Europe and through World War II. And God forbid you were too fat. You know, they still had that in my family from my dear old dad, that shiksa ideal that somehow I was going to be tall, thin, skinny, blonde, whatever it was going to be that I wasn't enough of. And that's how I grew up. Uh, Dad went into OA on the East Coast in the late 70s, early 80s. He went to conventions at the Concord. Um, I have people who know what that means. He went on gray sheet. He was a sponsor, and he had sponsors, and he had great, great success. And I, that meant that I never had the privilege of not knowing about program. I grew up in a house full of AA books. There, there wasn't even an OA 12 and 12 then. Um, I knew what the big book was. I knew the 12 steps. So I never had the privilege to not know what the problem was and what the solution was. And, you know, you can change your pants, but you can't change your genes. And I carry his addictive genes. And none of that made any difference because I wanted to keep on eating more than I wanted to stop or more than I wanted to do what I already knew at a very young age it would take to stop eating. 
And my other favorite quote, it, you know, we all can more or less do how it works by heart, but the section right after how it works is called more about alcoholism. And that includes the words, the idea that he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. And the idea that I could control and enjoy my eating was the one that drove me to 191 pounds. It drove me through every single diet. It drove me through every single binge because on one hand I was binging knowing there was another diet or on the other hand I was dieting just so I could get down to that perfect weight and then start the next binge even if I didn't think it was going to be the next binge because I thought there was going to be a day where I could control and enjoy my eating and that day never came. Um, Seeing Bobby here tonight reminded me that I walked when I came back on August 25th, 2014, I was angry and I was still involved in my great emotional relationship with the what I call the evil scale God. I had lost a great deal of weight. I had a little, uh, you know, a come to Jesus, a road to Damascus moment when I saw some pictures of myself. They're the ones where I'm wearing the sleeveless dress. Um, And I saw those pictures and I thought, holy shit. And I proceeded to compulsively exercise and restrict my weight down to my lowest weight as an adult. Which is probably about the same weight that I was when at the age of 14 I decided I was morbidly obese and needed to go on a diet. So just show, put everything back in perspective. But uh, early in recovery... At that time, desperate, I had gotten the greatest job of my life. I was going, everything was going to be new and different and better. And the one thing that I knew is that sugar makes me stupid. One of the books we had in the house was Sugar Blues from the from the late 70s. Again, I knew, I knew sugar was poison. I knew sugar was an addictive substance. And I also knew just somehow there was going to be a way I could eat one of whatever it was and stop. And that has never, ever, ever been the case for me. And I still look at my husband, who I met in the rooms as a drug addict and an alcoholic, and he can eat a little and stop and put it back in the freezer, let's say. And I am like, what kind of depraved lunatic are you? That's a whole pint. That is the normal size for that particular food. I'm sure you would all agree. Um, And I was whinging about the scale because I was still weighing myself at that time. And this gentleman told me in no uncertain terms to stop that. And that was unthinkable to me because I was so caught up in that diet mentality and so not trusting in a higher power that I believe that if I did not step on that scale once a week, once a month, once a day, once an hour, I would immediately balloon back to my highest weight and beyond because I was so scared of my disease and I hadn't yet developed a relationship with a higher power that could allow me to believe that there was a recovery beyond just white knuckling it every day through my food plan. Um, But I kept coming back because there was nowhere else to go. And at that point, from my father being in program in the late 70s and early 80s, even if he could not stay in recovery at that time, 
I knew it was there. I knew it was the only place to come back to. I had another friend in my life who anytime I would beg her to, you know, personal train me or be a diet accountability buddy, she just kept saying there is a solution. You need to go back to program. And at this point, I had developed the brilliant theory that the 12 steps worked because I was clean and sober. And that was easy enough because I was in the food for the past 25 years. And I knew that the program worked, but it wouldn't work for me because I was a very special snowflake and my disease was worse than anybody else's. And it might work for other people, but it wasn't going to work for me. And there was still no place else to go. And uh, I came back in angry, frustrated. I didn't want to get a sponsor. I didn't want to work the steps. Mostly I wanted to sit around and share and be one of those people who feel sorry for themselves. You know that person. Uh, Maybe you are that person. Maybe you've been that person. And I was that person through my first couple of months. You know, I would just wait for that part of the end of the meeting where they would throw it open to newcomers. And that was just my opportunity to whinge my, my full head off about how unhappy I was. Um, and I came back, and I kept coming back, and I got a sponsor because I liked her dog. So I asked her to sponsor me because at this point I was way more fond of dogs than people. I may still be more fond of dogs than people. And with incredible slowness and patience and a lot of calling me out on my bullshit very, very gently, I started working the steps. And I haven't, I, I'd say I've gone through them once now, and then I was still hung up on the body image stuff, completely hung up on the body image stuff. And she sent me right back to step one around both body image and body type. You know, I had to get it through my head that I am this person. I am the daughter of all these short, fat Jewish women. And I'm never going to be sick something. I'm never going to be blonde. And I'm never going to have that kind of body. I've got this body. And this is the healthy body that I've worked toward. And today, it was so gorgeous out in the sun in Dolores Park. And I was able to take you know my cover up off and show my arms. And there was a time where you could not pay me to show my arms because those were big, fat grandma arms. And that's all I could see when I looked in a mirror was my double chin, my gut, my big, fat grandma arms. And that's not easy to get past. And, you know, I still try to tell people who are newcomers who I'm working with that they need to get off the scale and they don't want to hear it. And I know for some people, the scale still works. So whatever I'm saying that doesn't resonate with you is fine. Take what you need and leave the rest. All I can say is that from that top weight of 191, because I no longer get on the scale, I do not know what my current weight is. I do know that I have worn the same size for approximately five years now. And some of that may be vanity sizing, and they put a lot of spandex and stuff now, but it's a number I can live with. I have a food plan that I can live with. I, I tell people, don't look for maintenance. Look for sustainability. Can you do this food plan day after day after day? Because if you're sitting there facing a plate of something that you're told is healthy, and it's making you miserable, you're not going to sustain it. 
You're going to go out because the disease is stronger than that. Um, at least mine is. So I have a food plan that works for me. I have a baseline definition of abstinence, which is no binging and no lying about food. And I have a plan of eating that sustains that abstinence. There are many, many, many foods that are all alcoholic foods for me. I believe they are one is too many and a thousand is never enough. I won't go into morbid detail about them, but you know, there's some of the usual suspects and a few special suspects in my case, but I do not touch them. And when I deal with the outside world, it is remarkable to me how strange I look from the other side. Um, people say, are you, are you sure you couldn't just have one? Are you, are, you, are you sure you have to keep going to those meetings forever? Are you sure you're an addict? I'm pretty sure. And if anybody isn't sure that I'm an addict, um, one of the last pictures in there, there's a before and after of me and my spouse, and the second half of that was Maui, July of 2014. And that was right after I had lost a lot of weight completely through restriction and compulsive exercise. I rode my bike to work every day for a year, and then I'd go to the gym before work, or I'd go running after work, or I'd go to the gym again. And today, by the way, I'm also in recovery from compulsive exercise, and my sponsor makes me bookend. If I have just finished a yoga class, if I've finished a gym workout, if I've run, I have to call her and tell her that. And no, I don't get to go to another class after that because that's the same disease talking to me. Um, so through this compulsive exercise and all these uh, food-like substances that were not really food, I lost a good chunk of weight. And I was so happy, I thought. And I'd gotten this job, and that was going to make me so happy, I thought. And when you're happy, there's not supposed to be a reason to binge because the only reason I'm binging is because I'm fat, I'm ugly, nobody loves me, in spite of the fact that I have been married to a man for 30 years who told me very early in our relationship, I will love you no matter how fat you get, because I had shared some of my story with him. And he literally wrote that on a piece of paper to me before we got married, and I still didn't believe him. And he kept telling me I was beautiful at weights where I could not consider myself beautiful. And his love was not enough to keep me from binging. So all those years prior to that where I thought the story was, well, well, I eat this way because nobody loves me. And of course, nobody loves me because I'm fat because that role will keep going indefinitely. So there I was. I was in Maui. I was with my husband. I was completely happy. And we went to dinner, and I already knew what foods I shouldn't and couldn't eat because they would trigger the phenomenon of craving. Even though I wasn't back in the program, I could walk the walk. Uh, I mean, I could talk the talk. I couldn't walk the walk. I knew the spiel. I could recite program to you backwards and forwards. I came to San Francisco with six months clean and sober and proceeded to use NA and NA as my personal dating club which I emphatically do not mean dating. Um, and I knew program. I knew program. And I walked into that restaurant and uttered these words, quote unquote, gluten, schmuten, give me the rolls. And they did. And by the end of that night even, I was shoving 
chocolate-covered macadamia nuts into my face and trying to hide that fact from my husband because he thought I was still on my diet. He, He was so proud of me. And I woke up in the middle of the night with melted chocolate all over my hands and all over the bed sheets so that it looked as if I'd soiled the bed sheets in the middle of the night. And I was trying to clean this mess up and scrape it off the sheets so that my husband wouldn't see what I'd done. And if you want to talk about some incomprehensible demoralization, it's pretty much right there when you're scraping chocolate off the hotel room sheets because you can't stop eating chocolate macadamia nuts. And I did not stop eating chocolate macadamia nuts for the rest of that trip. And I kept binging for another month. So that's what I call the beginning of the beginning of the end of my last binge. And that binge did go on until August uh, 25th, 2014. And, And then it stopped. And, you know, I wasn't necessarily getting better, but I stopped binging and I'm a very firm believer that you got to put the plug in the jug to work the steps. And I know there's people for whom that is also not the case and they have successfully worked steps and then been able to put the food down. Sugar makes me stupid. Wheat makes me stupid. I believe in a grain brain when I'm on the carbs and I'm shoving food in my face, nothing else matters. And I'm certainly not going to be honest about my character defects, my (coughs) sins of commission and omission. I had to be clean before I could start working the steps. So that's what I always come back to. Plug in the jug, work the steps. And how did those steps go, you asked? One of the things it mentions in here is the stealing. I did a lot of stealing in my disease because I was entitled, because my life was so hard, and who would miss it anyway? And one of, I'll just jump to this, because it's one of the hard parts I had to do, was walk to the Safeway at Church and Market and uh, attempt to make financial amends for the food I'd eaten there out of the bins and stuff. Because to me, bins are just an invitation. That's that's my food. I'm going to eat that. And I had to, and my sponsor made me come up with a figure of the financial restitution I was going to make. And she made damn sure it was a number that was going to hurt. You know, it had to matter because I went to that place for a good, you know, 15, 20 years to binge. Um, They didn't take the check, but I gave them, I voided the check and gave it to them as a symbol. And it's still hard for me. I have like Robocop eyes. If I see like a piece of food on the floor, you know, I'm, I'm honing in. And there's still a part of me that thinks that's free food. And I get to pick up that food and pop it into my mouth. And I don't get to do that because that first compulsive bite, whatever it is, could be the one. Um, you know, I've been listening to a lot of really like remedial big book stuff lately. And the definition of an alcoholic as one who cannot stop once he starts and cannot stay stopped. It is only through my higher power, through working these steps every day. If nothing else, I read uh, the acceptance passage every day. That's, I'm really lucky. I have got one of those sponsors. I don't have one of those you will do as I do sponsor like the kind you used to get back in the 80s who would tell you what to eat and how to do it. And uh, we don't have that relationship. 
we have a much better one. But the one thing she did tell me was that I had to read the acceptance package every day, and I have that on my phone, and I do read that every day. Um, and from just reading that, from reading Nothing Happens in God's World by Mistake, everything else sort of happened. And uh, one of the meetings I go to, luckily I've had the same schedule. Is that my five minutes? Five minutes. Yay, almost done. Uh, so this will be good. I go to the writing meeting um, at Davies, 9.45 a.m., Saturday mornings. And that was how I did my fourth step. It took over a year. I wrote through every question in the fourth step in here and my poor sponsor had to listen to all of it not all at once but we did it incrementally and I've been able to go there and use that particular tool which works for me I like to write um, and I have to do a lot of writing to write through my own bullshit because the first ton of writing will just be me telling the story and sharing what I think someone wants to hear and then if I write enough I get to the germ of truth about my self-righteousness, about my ego, about the God-sized hole that comes from still believing I'm not good enough because I'm not tall and thin and blonde and whatever it was that my father wanted me to be that I couldn't be good enough as. And I don't blame him for my disease. My disease is my disease. I grew up knowing about it. I grew up knowing what the solution was. And it took me till now, or five years ago when I came back, and I'm 55 now, and my father died in this disease and of it, and that is not going to happen to me. I may die with this disease, but I am not going to die of it one day at a time, by the grace of God. Thank you. Mm -hmm.